Hey everyone, this is the first episode of our new Film Historians podcast, where we will be doing a reappreciation of the most influential works from Peter Bogdanovich, one of the most talented, yet forgotten about director from the early 1970s. His films Targets, Last Picture Show, and Paper Moon received critical success and were considered landmarks of the next genius generation of filmmakers. Bogdanovich's work didn't just come in the form of movies. He was also a dedicated film historian who authored many books about films and the people who acted in them. Unfortunately, he passed away in early 2022, but he left behind a fascinating life story, from a friendship with Orson Welles to a brief cameo in It, Chapter 2. Our conversation about Bogdanovich is lengthy, and it will come in three parts. As for now, I'm Chase Carson, and with my co-host Will Rafter, we will begin. We're going to be discussing uh, Peter Bogdanovich, right, today? We're going to be... Yeah, we're going to be talking about Peter Bogdanovich's uh, directorial work, mainly his first several movies. I don't know if we'll get all the way down through his, like, 90s to 2000s career. (laughs) Um, Maybe we'll mention it briefly when we're done talking about his other stuff. Um, It'd be worth saying something. Yeah, but I just felt like, because he died recently, and I kind of felt like the whole reason to do this was, one, I felt like he had, he's kind of like the forgotten about new wave director, in in my opinion. I don't know if you would agree with that. No, but I do, yeah. Because it's kind of like, he's not part of the Brat Pack in terms of Steven Spielberg, Coppola, Scorsese, yeah, you know, he didn't mix with them, and he didn't like. He wasn't part of that circle. True. Um, and he, it's funny. He kind of like he didn't have his downfall, but he was kind of making un- unsuccessful movies while they were becoming like the most popular people, all True. within one decade. Um, right. Which is interesting, but basically, I thought, hey, let's talk about him because I felt like in a certain way he wasn't getting his dues. I agree. Um, I kind of, and I was kind of like, you know, I feel like maybe somebody out there should be relieved to know that people under sixty-five still remember Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> um, it is important and, and appreciate him and what he, and and what he did. Um, and also, another reason I wanted to do this uh, was because of this little passageway in his book. Here, it's a little passageway. From his book, Who the Hell's In It, um, part of his Who the Hell's In It, or Who the Hell's In It, like, collection of books he did, right? Yes. Um, just pieces on different actors and directors, while this one focuses on actors. But there's a little passage here that reads, The most distressing aspect, finally, to the power of the players is how quickly it usually diminishes after their retirement or death. In directing a young actor in 1997, I mentioned as a way of encouraging him that he reminded me of James Cagney. The fellow had no idea who I was talking about. Toward the end of 2002, I told another actor in his 20s to handle the scene more lightly. More Cary Grant, I said, and got a totally blank reaction. And these are actors, people in show business whose job one would think is to be familiar with the great past achievements in their chosen field. The young American audience seems not only to be totally ignorant of these, but to have practically no interest in any film shot earlier than maybe 1980 or 1990. The classics of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s might as well be in Sanskrit. Silent pictures are not even worth raising as a distant possibility. Black and white is an anathema. Uh, The great names of the past, many of the players in this book, mean nothing to younger filmgoers. That they are missing untold pleasures, that there is an overflowing treasure of joyful, enriching, edifying experiences waiting for them doesn't seem to be within their realm of consciousness. Um, and I felt like that's been more and more true recently. Not, I mean, it's not like I interview I know every actor in town. <laughs> um, but I just felt like all those big classics of the past are, are like getting more and more distant. And they're getting, they're fading away quicker and quicker. And it's where it's even to the point where it's like a 1970s 
really famous director whose works won Academy Awards mm-hmm. is yeah. like no, like it's it's the chances of people knowing him fully are rare and low. Um, by the way, if you're watching this, I we had an audio snafu. I thought I had an extra cable and microphone, but I don't, so that's why I'm wearing this goofy-looking headset. <laughs> yes, I know it looks great. Um, it totally does, and totally doesn't embarrass me at all. But, uh, you know, let's just keep going. <laughs> I so, feel special holding the mic. <laughs> <laughs> you, have a, you feel like a little bit of a power. Uh, a little bit. It feels like it gives me something to do. Uh, no, I listen, it's passages like that, which is why I'm such a fan of his. And I think that's absolutely true that not just an average moviegoer, but what's more alarming to me in a way, people in the entertainment business, uh, just generally I get the vibe. Younger people, uh, they don't even know a movie prior to, let's say, 1975, 70. Maybe in a few instances, but they, don't, they just don't know the, uh, the background of their own chosen profession. And it's kind of like getting to, well, you want to study, you want to be a playwright and you want to study theater, but you know, you have no idea who Tennessee Williams is. Or yeah, I think it's someone who wrote maybe like something streetcar named Desire, something like that. And that's all they know. Yeah. It's like, it's like somebody who, you know, you, it's very important. You, it's important to know who came before you and who paved the way, who made it possible. Um, how do you not know who Cary Grant is? Well, I mean, I know that younger generations, they may not know who he is who he is but an actor i mean they study they're supposed to study this in their school or if they have any kind of training you just think that they would naturally gravitate to this material um and it's just it's it's sad and scary and what is and it, it it irritates me that uh you know what are the future movies and the projects are going to be like you know if you don't have that sense of history you know i think uh i think it uh, says more about the the younger generations not care about history at all. Frankly, I think it 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 it, uh, it goes further than just film. Yeah, well, it's also interesting that P- Bogdanovich knew about that in the seventies, and like he was really aware of that in the seventies um, of the older players like fading away, um, where he was like a really uh, uh, prolific historian and a film historian. Like he himself knew that film history. He felt like he was important. Um, and I feel like part of this specific episode, at least, is like, hey, we we appreciate you, Peter. Um, and we also appreciate the work you did for documenting yes. film history. And uh, just a little like, hey, let's do a little bit of like a history on like the probably like the biggest film historian or at least the most popular film historian. Because oh. I don't know who else it would be besides like. Tarantino in interviews. Right. Bogdanovich was a... And he's not a... Yeah, and he's... Tarantino's not a journalist or a historian. He just knows about it. Right. His knowledge is so vast and talks about it constantly. He just... But Bogdanovich made sure to document it, and that's the difference. Um, To to fully write about it and write think pieces. He was a writer. I mean, that's another reason why I love Bogdanovich so much, you know. And that maybe caused some of his future downfall was his writing but we'll get there some of it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah targets um is a 1968 movie uh-huh. as we've established and it's basically to me the te- i mean the the plot description the synopsis is a a random boy like a young a random boy starts to go on a killing spree a boy yeah. um it just starts like sniping people off the off a water tower that are on a highway while at the same time a new a new wave american hollywood director is trying to make his new movie work and to me it's it's kind of like that's the synopsis but to me the movie's really about literally literally the death of old hollywood mm-hmm. yeah and the bringing up of new hollywood and kind of retro, and kind of being about what we just talked about, where it's like new Hollywood. Those people didn't. Those people and the new actors, new directors, they didn't care about killing off the old stuff. Like they just threw away all the old actors. Like they don't care. It's almost in a way like talking about how they just throw away old 
older actors, you know, who aren't popular anymore um, with the Boris Karloff character. Because right. to me, the, I mean, the whole thing is about Boris Karloff. And I think he gives one of the best performances in any of Bogdanovich's pictures. I don't know if he gets enough credit to me because I honestly think his the ending part of that movie yes. where he's talking about like that's what I was afraid of this whole time. Right. He sees the boy. It, right. And it's like it's nothing. He thought it was a shad this giant shadow monster on the screen and that's, you know, uh reflective of his career, mm-hmm. the monster on the screen. Um like th- all that stuff and even when he's in the bed cuz by the way Boris Karloff was 80. Was when he they that were old? making he was 80 oh when they gosh. shot this and he was basically dying of lung cancer or something like that. He had like oh. half of a lung left. Um he still had that famous voice though. Yeah, he did. <laughs> uh he was also like the narrator for the Grinch. Oh, the, the, I was going to say the, okay, I when I think of Boris Karloff, I always think of the Grinch for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's what I, that, that's classic. That classic. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but he was like on death's door, and I think he died like maybe a month after it. They they di- he either died like a month after they stopped shooting, or they died a month after the movie came out. Like I didn't something recently, was that like soon that. after. Yeah, I it was really realize. quick afterwards. But um, I, at least I think. But to me, like that's as good as anything. That performance is as good as anything you get in that picture show. Oh, yeah, and, I see that. Um. What's up, Doc? And Paper Moon, uh-huh. but and that was to me. It also proves Bogdanovich's like instant genius of being able to bring off because it's not like he's bringing Orson Welles in, and Orson Welles was like his best friend at the time. Right, it's right. It's not like he's bringing Orson Welles in, where it's like, well, of course Orson Welles gives a good performance. Sure, you know, or like, oh, oh, we got Cary Grant. I'm not sure when Cary Grant passed, but that's just an example. Yeah, it's like no, he brings in Boris Karloff. Like what? And then Boris Karloff gives. An amazing performance amazing. in that part. It's a of, beautiful of performance. Pseudo Boris Karloff. No, yeah, no, I love it. He's a dignified uh, gentleman in it, and you just—it's—it's it's basically between, and it's a battle between these generations. But it, it's—he perceives it to be what he what he feared was a lot less scary once he faced it at the end. And I agree with you. His his performance, uh, watching it the recently again really stood out more than I watched it the first time. And I don't know if it's because I'm older. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I'm scared of things. Well, you're not 80. No, I'm not 80. No, that, that's true. But he gives a wonderful performance in this. And, I, I mean, he goes um, – probably got a chance to do the kind of acting that he really wanted to do uh, that Peter Bogdanovich – you know, he gave him that opportunity, gave him that chance uh, because – he was known to be just in these scary movies, uh, these horrific films that uh, um, where he was just like monsters or whatever. And this gave him depth, personality. It gave him actual something to play with. He was playing a fully dimensional person. And uh, yeah, I think he was absolutely wonderful. Bogdanovich, you know, compared to him, but he was a good actor, but he they he was kind of stiff in it a little bit. But he's playing a very certain yeah. type. I think you know there. I think Bogdanovich knew the range that he had, and played squarely in that range. Well, I mean, he's basically playing himself in that role. He's yeah. literally the director. Uh, I can't remember. It's something like Sammy Otterson or something weird like that. Uh, his character's name are like Otter. I forget the I forget yeah I forget the name. Um, but it's like, oh, he's playing a film director who has to make a new film of his work that has been assigned to him from like a '60s B B movie role, where they're working under all these weird circumstances and conditions. Yeah. Um, and he has to use an older star, and also that also that character is a film historian. Where he references 20s movies and 30s movies, and he says that they don't make good movies like that anymore. That's him. Like, oh, th- th- that's to, exactly to the T. To the T. Um, there's always a Peter Bogdanovich character in like 
all of his movies, I swear to God, I swear. Pretty pretty much, yeah. Like, all of his movies just have a Peter Bogdanovich character. Well, he was tremendously self-aware. You can see that in how he, oh, yeah. in the performances he gave and uh, in his movies and what he wrote about. He's always referencing something. He's always using uh, the knowledge that he had and incorporate it directly into the movies, into his scripts. I mean, you, you, you can't separate... You can't separate the two. You can't separate Bogdanovich and his sensibility, his taste, what and, and what he thought and felt about the media at the time, what he about movies at the time, and uh, that made him stand out in a lot of ways than uh, some like you were mentioning, let's say like Coppola or Spielberg. Yeah. You know, it was very, it was very different. Yeah. Um, very different. But I, I really, really can't understate enough like the brilliance of that movie's ending of target's ending um where boris karloff finally thinks like this horrible monster murderer is out there even though there is a horrible murderer out there but then he when he sees it's just like a like a 19 year old or like a 16 year old or something yeah um faces his fear yeah i i even though i know the 16 year old brutally killed his family Yes, he's a horrible monster. I get that. <sighs> but, like, when Boris Karloff is walking away, he's like, oh, that's what I was afraid of, this boy. To me, it was like that's him thinking about his own death in a weird way. Like, cause it's, it was like the shadow of death mm-hmm. appearing over him. And not just for the character, for Boris Karloff yeah. himself. Like, that's the shadow of death looming over him. But then it's, he's kind of, like, accepting it at the end. Right. Um. I mean, literally, death came for him yeah. in, in Targets. And can we just mention about the ending, the visuals and the cutting and the editing and yeah, that yeah. is absolutely it's, it's spectacular. I mean, that's a lot of components and that, you know, to be working with at one time and all the, the just the cutting back and forth between the, the movie screen and uh, the various shots of the people getting shot at and dying in their cars and, you know, in the drive through and the drive in rather. And it was just. I mean, it's so technically – it looks technically intimidating. That I, don't, I mean, he was a young director at the time. I mean, obviously, what second movie we th- you said? I think it was his second? It's technically his second. Technically his second. I don't know if you could count that first one as being totally a Peter Bogdanovich production. Okay. Because it's, it's kind of that weird, like, first Roger Corman movie, like, right. you know. He had um, a lot of say. He said, this is what you're doing. He kind of he was yeah, kind of in control. He, Roger Corman yeah. was kind of in control, but he also let Peter Bogdanovich have a lot of control as well. Mm-hmm. But Targets was like, he had some okay, I'm just going to let you go. Yeah. Corman said, I'm just going to let you go. And, you know, thank goodness for Roger Corman in, in those days, uh, just letting those directors kind of take over. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you wouldn't have so many of those 70s Francis new wave. Coppola, yeah, no. I mean, he wrote a lot of He I uses mean, the movie that Coppola did for Corman in Targets. I know. And we wouldn't have had Jack Nicholson And Jack either. Nicholson's in it, too. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. I know. Um, See a really young Jack Nicholson. You're seeing all those, like, legends now, like, in their younger days, like, just tr- having, like, l- it almost just seems like a college try of it, where it's like, yeah. l- they're laughably aware of what they're doing and stuff. But a lavish college try. Yeah, I mean they had I mean, a big yeah. play. They were given this playground. They were literally lucky. Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood <laughs> say, "Here now, go do this. You know, and have fun, but also you know show what you can do." Yeah, and you know Bogdanovich and did that for sure. And when studios were giving like their big directors ex- time to experiment and like yeah, they were hinging a lot of big bets and they were placing bigger bets. Um, it's also interesting. Like their studio connection with Frank Marshall, who was a producer of his for a long time, became big time um, became, later on. You know, yeah, part of the famous Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall, yep. and Steven Spielberg like producing trio. Yeah, um, I don't know if he was like a founder of Amblin or not. Like, I don't know if he, he is or not, but um, no, I don't know if he is like or not. That's their production company. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I just know that he was always on. You see his name. Uh, you know, produced by and everything, you know, all kinds of movies later on, big hits. And yeah, it was part of uh, Spielberg's productions there for yeah, a yeah. long time. I mean, who would have known the stars and, uh, you know, that were arisen from the, these Roger Corman pictures and these small little things. It's yeah. Kind, kind of amazing. They sound like they, when <laughs> I heard Frank Marshall talk about it uh, before and the way he describes it, who would have thought there's just some kid 
even though I th- believe his dad was in the business, if I if I'm Who's not mistaken, dad? Frank Marshall's. I believe he had a parent who was some is in the. I think do Frank, in the business. I think he did, but I don't think it was like a super glorified. No, no, I don't think it was anything. Position. Over, yeah, I don't think it was. It was major. just something. I can't remember. But he just had like some some kid in in, in college that was kind of like kicking the can a little bit down the road and not entirely sure what to do, and he just found this place, and it really began, you know, begins with Peter Bogdanovich. And yeah. Roger Corman too, of course, because the opportunity existed ultimately because of Corman. But Bogdanovich, you know, is the one that really gave him him his real opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's a lot of like this early Bogdanovich stuff too, where um, you talked about the editing and like the cross cutting earlier. Where it's like, it, once you know a little bit more about Peter Bogdanovich, like, the way he makes his movies is so, not obvious, but it's very clear. Like, he took a lot of the stuff he learned from Orson Welles as his friend into his movies, where it's kind of like, Orson Welles gave him the advice, like, never cut unless you have to. Yes. And it's kind of, it's so obvious in Targets, where you're he's kind of using, like, longer takes, uh, longer motions of action. It's cockyian in some cases. It's cockyian yeah. and just like only cut when you have to, mm-hmm. um, and kind of staging his scenes and blocking his scenes in a way where it's you're very if you know about that you're very aware that's happening. Um, oh, yeah. The extended scenes and and less cutting and letting actors play out like a whole scene without cutting away. Um, so you really appreciate that about him too. Oh yeah, uh, which is kind of like. No, it's not new or taking it for granted or whatever, but it's kind of like it, it's nice that he was just completely trusting of like everybody. Where do you uh, have that kind of again like playground? You know, given today, I think that does it even exist? Like, does is there a place for uh, a director to come in and show what he or she? has to you know how the stories that they can tell you know where's the roger corman today it's it's so much it's so different i mean they were lucky these the bogdanovich spielberg coppola scorsese they they lucked out in the time period that they were in because there was freedom because there were opportunities because the construct of of movie making and hollywood and everything was so different It, it doesn't even compare to today so it's it's harder to uh you know, establish the unique voice, expose the unique voice. And it's, it's difficult for the artists to do that, for someone who may be like Peter Bogdanovich or any of the others that we mentioned uh, to come in and start, you know, and, and do something similar today. Yeah. I mean, because also it was nice that Corman, when you made a movie for him, it was like, oh, no, they're going to go in theaters. Yeah. You know, and Corman was given the respect he was given. Um, the only thing I could think of like that today is like Jason Bloom, maybe. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, yeah. Fully, your movie becomes a hit. Yeah. yeah. It's just a thing that where it's kind of like a lot of the directors that have kind of come out of Bloomhouse haven't really made huge mega hits like the 70s generation, only one being Jordan Peele, really. That's it. That's all you can like, think yeah. of. That's the only name that a general audience would automatically know yeah. upon yeah. hearing or seeing the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was just like the way movie theaters were treated were just different. It was all different. And talk about movie theaters. Why don't you tell us about the last picture show? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because uh, that's next. That was his next release. Right. Uh, 71. Yeah. That's right. Arguably, I think generally it's considered to be his masterpiece, right? Oh, yes. Out of everything. I would, and I would agree with that. Uh, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. And I really do. And, I, for everything from the casting to the choices that he made, obviously in cinematography, and a lot of this has has to give credit to his wife at the time, right, Polly Platt, Polly yeah, who contributed a lot uh, to the look and the feel yeah, yeah. of the movies for sure. Uh, a lot of credit. Um, it, in fact, I think that she kind of helped create the stamp, that look that that you consider to be Bogdanovich. Uh, so there was a lot. She had a lot of input, which is a very hard stamp to define. Very. Um, That's a good point. It, it's very hard uh, until you get to his sex romp comedies, <laughs> and then you're just like, oh yeah, this, it's like, oh oh, this is yeah, this is a Bogdanovich picture. 
Um, yeah, but for, for, of course, because it, it also wasn't just like, you know, he wasn't trying to be stylistically um, st- stylistically aggressive to the point where he wanted everybody to know. But just by the way it looks, it's a Bogdanovich picture. Yeah. I, I think a picture, like I'm an 80-year-old man. <laughs> but a movie, but where he's like, I think he really was was more interested in creating good performances for his actors. And he was more like, if the actors get really good performances, then the movie itself will have recognition. He doesn't need to be like, you know, he doesn't feel a need. His his Bogdanovich stamp was like good acting. Right. Basically. Um, good performances. Because I know I've, I'm on record. You, I've said this to you many times. <laughs> Um, but the last picture show, in my opinion, is one of the best movies like ever made. Yes, yeah, it, it is. The drama in it and the character drama in it is so sincere and heartbreaking. Um, but we should probably talk about what it's about first. Oh yes, yes, uh, yes, that's right. So it's basically it's in the fifties because Korea is happening. The Korean War is happening yes. in America, but it's about a small town in Texas where. Basically, it follows high school seniors on their graduation day and then to, like, maybe a couple of months after that. Um, I don't know if it's a year after they fully graduate or not, but like, it's high school, It's following high school seniors, what their lives are like after they graduate high school in this super small town of Texas that is dying. Yeah. Boring. Looks like there's nothing yeah. to do. It looks like all those towns you see in, like, like a, like a Western or something. Like, right. It's like the 30s one street town and, like... Um, but they're also very clearly witnessing it dying as well. Yeah. Um, like the like the descent of the town into bankruptcy and poverty. And the the meaning of the last picture show is like the movie theater itself there is closing down. And that was a spot where they all used to hang out. Right. And it's it's closing down for business, for good. Um, but it's it's that sounds like a weird teen romp premise. <laughs> you know, like the movie theater's coming down. Whoa. Yeah. But it's like, but it goes more into the adults of the town too in their right. lives, and it's like the degradation of their lives, right, over time, um, and like the old the perceptions of people in the fifties of their lives, like how the younger generation saw their lives, um, and how the people in the seventies imagined the people in the seven the people in the seventies how they imagined how people in the fifties lived their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like I said this to you earlier where like a long time ago when I first watched it, where it was like, you know, a lot of people believed the peop- that people in the fifties were like goody two shoes and they were, Oh, we don't do anything with like getting good and clean and washed up <laughs> and all this. And everybody's going to get married by the time they're 18 and be a good family. And it's like, <laughs> no people in the fifties, no. they slept around all the time. Like anyone, they were, they were miserable. Right. <laughs> like they're just like from today. They got drunk. They 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 had miserable lives. Yeah, just yeah. like right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody's miserable. Nothing's changed. Well, <laughs> but uh, and yeah, and so but that to me is like what re- truly becomes the most powerful aspect of the movie. Right, is the adults their lives because it, it it's kind of like the teenagers. Um, you know, famously played by young Sybil Shepherd and a young Jeff Bridges. Yeah, and then young. Uh, third actor who went on to d- didn't do that much. Uh, well known. Sorry, his name's like Sammy Johnson or something, <laughs> or maybe that's his character's name. But it's like, yeah, sorry, that guy didn't. He was very good in the famous. movie. <laughs> very good in the movie, yeah. but he he didn't become Jeff Bridges or Sybil <laughs> Shepherd. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dude. But um, yeah, it's basically like how they can kind of witness these events and because of their youth and witness the adults' lives crumbling. But because of their youth, they can actually like move on from that, right? And and they can get through that and adapt from that, while the older people have to live with their crumbling lives. Yeah, God, it sounds so depressing. But it, it, it but it is depressing, and I think you're it's right. It's a totally depressing movie, but I swear to God, it's like it's one of the best movies ever made, and I swear that it's every single actor in it could have won an Academy Award. I agree. It's acting, like I think every single yes. actor could have won an, an award, because even. Even the the people who did win the awards, um, Ellen Burstyn, John- Ellen Burstyn, yeah. and Ben Johnson, won. Ben Johnson, he's only in it for five minutes. I know, but that little monologue, that little monologue, but that mo- little monologue, and the way the camera moves in that movie as well, 
not only in that scene but in the movie because it's camera slow movement. and the panning yes brilliant yes it's like, brilliant he cat it's capturing something it's a and it's evocative somehow yeah he he evokes the depression he de- the 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 sad lives of desolation yeah you said it right you said it best i think when you know in part the reason why it's the fifties artifice stripped away. And so what's, yeah, what is revealed when you strip that away, these people and that the picture show, which had to be the only window. I mean, other than reading, but you get a sense that these people are not, you know, flipping through pages every night. Their only window into other worlds or extensive imaginations is that picture show also for a good time, of course, but it also, you know, a, a movie house or, you know, uh, a theater even still can still create that sense of community or bring people together for an experience yeah. and you realize that you know in this movie that's being taken away it's just so run down it's just it's just not there anymore so the whole thing really is about longing people are desperate to communicate with each other in this movie they do and they do so you see it i think in, in fundamentally in the Cloris Leachman her character Ruth, right, go, you know, is so desperate for human contact and and for something else. She's so unhappy, and so she finds it with this, shall we just say, very young man, right? And so they're together, uh, but it's this longing that you feel, and they're all reaching for something, and there's nothing to reach for. So all they have are these, these uh, are the other people in this town who they f- some of them feel so estranged from each other, or they don't really like each other, or they look down on their neighbors a little bit. Ellen Burstyn gives, uh, her character gives Cloris Leachman's look a, a, a terrible, a terrible look that is just like, who, you know, who the hell are you? Or like looks down on her. And uh, for it's so, the minimalism, I think, in the, in the movie and what you could say Bogdanovich's style, because I would say it's minimal or subtle in the way that Altman is stu- subtle. When the camera's always moving, but it could just Altman. Well, subtle. I think. Well, I think there's subtlety in in, in Altman's. We don't want to get digress into <laughs> Altman here, because I think that with Altman, his camera yeah, is images so is subtle. Well, sometimes his camera moves so slowly, and you don't even realize it. It's just slowly rounding the scene. It's slowly rounding the actors. Bogdanovich has done that several times, and it, it stands out. With Bogdanovich, it's a little bit more pronounced. That, that I think often the camera, you, not that it's drawing attention away from the performances or the scene, it, it's used to great effect. He, uh, he does it very well, the way he places and moves his camera. But yeah. the panning around and the moving down of the streets, like, like say, of the town yeah. near the Lost Picture Show is wonderful and it's subtle but very effective. The black and white? The black and white film stock is also very pretty, but I think his camera movement is um, very classically inspired, but it also has that, it feels inventive the same way the rest of the 70s directors use their cameras. Not as much, of course, as like a Scorsese sure. would go on to move his camera or whatever, but... It's so distinct. The yeah. way he moves his camera, but yeah. Bogdanovich, it was like it was classical enough, but it also felt like it kept up with the newer innovations and technology, and also the like just the newer ways people were trying to shoot movies. It wasn't still or sterile, and he yeah. was a student and a great admirer, really, of John Ford. Well, he was a self-appointed student, uh, yeah, yeah. John Ford. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely correct in that. You know, you pinpoint it perfectly. He he was so aware of the classical way of staging a movie. But you're right. He added that flair that you would consider 70s style at the time or the new auteur way of doing it in a way, you know, where there was more movement and freedom. But he, I think, also respected actors so much in the performances. He allowed the performances to shine, which he does maybe the most in Last Picture Show than any other movie mostly. I, I, would, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, it also helps that that one is based off a book. The Larry McMur- yeah, McMurtry uh, novel, yeah. Where maybe the writing itself was just a little bit better than some of his other movies that he wrote himself. Um, just a little, a better aspect of it because he's not from, he's from New York. He's a New York guy. Oh, yeah. Like, he had no personal connection to small town Texas. Right. right. He, he was, was a city boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the way he was able to dig into that feeling is like, 
um, kind of amazing for how he grew up and you know because in i grew up in iowa like small towns like that still do exist in the midwest and like in in the midwestern states and in iowa specifically it's like i know of those towns i I completely understand that super small town feeling of like how everyone knows everyone's business everyone knows what everyone's doing and it's like a weird circle effect of like everyone's gonna grow up this way no matter what year it is yeah um until one time one day it just officially all stops for good but um i would say it's it doesn't suck to call it his masterpiece because <laughs> it, it, no. it's definitely probably th- his best movie um from start to finish probably yeah his second movie that he made is probably his best movie um although i think paper moon gives it a good run for its money i think paper moon is is great i think it's excellent um, i love that movie paper moon's fantastic we'll get there when we get yes. there <laughs> but um <laughs> That picture show, of course, famously introduced Sybil Shepherd into Peter Bogdanovich's life. Um, Played in a huge, long chapter in his life. Yeah, where he had an affair with her on the set. Um, and I guess, you know, I was listening to that podcast you told me about. Yes. And where Polly Platt, his wife at the time, knew about it. And where she was just like saying, oh, it's kind of just a director thing. I thought this might happen, <sighs> you know. That's just the life of a director having affairs with their actors. Um, I thought I thought it would end by the time the movie's <laughs> over, um, and yeah, hey, uh, it didn't end by the time no, the movie was no. over. Um, I guess, but they had not an affair for fifty years, but they they were still good friends for until his death. Oh yeah, they were close enough were based close. on her what she had to say. Yeah, yeah, like I don't think Sybil Shepherd ever felt any ill. Ill towards him at all and was still checked up on him and still talked to him all the time up until his death. Yeah. Um, but for 1971's The Last Picture Show, going just coming back to it, I still feel like it surely is his masterpiece and his best movie. And in my opinion, one of the best movies ever made. Because um, it's very rare where I think every single actor in this could have won an award. That's almost never the case. Yeah, they all could. They should have just awarded best acting, best picture show, and just given them one mega award. Where like, yeah, the Oscar statue is like eight feet tall or something. <laughs> Jeff Bridges is great. Jeff Bridges, yeah, Jeff Bridges. How is natural super can good you be? It. I mean, a natural actor to play this spirited, carefree. The the scene where he walks out, he's so proud of himself after he uh, has just slept with Sybil Shepherd. Yeah, and yeah. He walks out of that room, the motel room, and that kind of like. That boyish, but half almost not like silly grin on his face, like, oh, it finally happened. This is amazing, but a contentment, but then also, well, what now? Yeah. You yeah. know, what else? What next? And but that's very difficult to capture in a, an expression and a performance. And he does it so naturally. And again, he was very young at that age. Yeah. I mean, these, these talented young people who were able to apparently so adroitly perform these, these, difficult technical things and acting and directing. I mean, how do they do it? I mean, I, it's, I don't know how they did it. Well, it's also speaks to him again, where it's, Oh, okay. Targets 80 year old Boris Karloff. <laughs> and then last picture show is like 18 year olds. Like, you know what I mean? Like going from like the complete opposite age. group. It's a big jump. A, yeah. But yeah, do you have anything left to say about that? No, I think I, th- Last Picture Show is something that you can talk about endlessly. It's one of those kind of f- movies that I, I, I think that college students who are studying, quote-unquote, cin- serious cinema, th- you could talk about it forever and have an entire conversation, and, uh, screenings of it, endlessly f- discussing it and dissecting it. Um, uh, there's more in the writing. Uh, you, you had mentioned it that I think uh, doesn't always – uh, get the attention it deserves because the performances are so outstanding. And um, but I think you're probably right. You know, Larry McMurtry, I believe, co-wrote that screenplay with mm-hmm. Peter Bogdanovich, and that's why the structure's there. That's why what's not supposed to be there, it isn't there. Everything is stripped down, concise. It's efficient, but you understand everything about those characters' emotional state, and you can see he I- the, the the spareness in the writing is really what allowed the good actors that they assembled to 
perform it and interpret those. So after, Do you concur? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I, I concur. <laughs> um, okay, so after the last picture show, he did serious drama. Serious drama. He did a slapstick <laughs> Looney Tunes esque cartoon comedy called What's Up Doc? Yes. 1972. Um, starring Ryan O'Neill, Barbara Streisand. The, the extraordinary Barbara Streisand. <laughs> the extraordinary Barbara Streisand. Um, I really like Barbara Streisand. I'm just going to uh, full disclosure here. You probably like What's Up Doc a lot then. So why don't you take it away? I love it. So you're absolutely right. It it, it would be – it's kind of a convoluted plot, but the – you know. That's quick, putting a light on it. It's very convoluted. The, the best way to describe it is that there's confusions with a bunch of briefcases, identical briefcases. And uh, in this crazy topsy-turvy San Francisco hotel uh, yeah. for a day, two days, uh, and it's a, essentially a, a love story, I suppose. It's a romance, but in the best tradition of a screwball, classic screwball comedy, uh, like Bring a Baby with Catherine yeah. Hepburn and Cary Grant. Uh, I love this movie. I think it's wonderful. I, I think it's obviously silly and unrealistic in so many ways. I mean, the coincidences involved, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it, it's not supposed to be uh, realistic or, or naturalistic. Um, it's in a way, what I love about it, I guess first and foremost, what I really love about it, aside from Barbara Streisand's uh, performance, uh, is uh, the way Bogdanovich pays homage to a genre that he clearly loves but at the same time, elevating it and and adapting it for its for the times, he modernized it for 1972, and that is a tremendously difficult task to say the least. And I think it's so it's so expert and so natural and seamless and smooth in how he did it that you kind of forget just what a smooth transition uh, he created in making this movie so adaptable for its time. But he got a lot out of his stars, though. It had a lot to do with the stars. Um, I, I think it's I think it's hysterical. The chase scene towards the end is kind of iconic. I mean, it's it's been mentioned uh, many times. It's cited many times as one of the top, you know, chase scenes. Yeah. Not you know, not in the same vein as let's say uh, the French Connection, but uh, yeah. not you know. But it, it I think it's hysterical. I love the gags, the one-liners. It's sharp, clever writing, and I actually think okay. So if The Last Picture Show is his best movie, and it is, it's his masterpiece. Sure. What's Up Doc is not a masterpiece in, in, the, you know, in the same way. No, 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 no. No, it's not. But it's one of the most enjoyable of his pure pleasurable uh, movies that he's directed. Just for sheer entertainment, for sheer life. Smart, you know, clever, quick, uh, you know, funny it's a breezy movie if you don't want to overthink, but it's still so well made that the, the mastery, the technical mastery and seriousness that he put into, you know, Last Picture Show and afterwards and Paper Moon, I think it, it's clearly still there. And you agree completely 100%. How'd you know I was going to say that? No, um, okay. So the tagline for um, What's Up Doc was, as you said earlier, like, yeah. yeah. The tagline on the movie poster was classic screwball comedy. <laughs> you know, remember those? Yeah. Question mark? Uh-huh. And I thought, after watching it, I was like, yeah, but that doesn't mean we want to see them again. Um, the, it is so convoluted. <laughs> the whole story is that four bags get mixed up. Yes. One of them is full of diamonds. <laughs> and some of the characters know that the diamonds are in the briefcase. Some of them don't. Yes. There's 50 characters um, that come in and out of the story. Yep. Um, just trying to get the trying to get the suitcase full of diamonds. It literally takes them forty five minutes to get to that plot point because everything beforehand is just it, it's just Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand meeting in the hotel and talking over and over again. I know. Barbara Streisand going, "Oh wait, you didn't think I knew that, Jack? Well, guess what? I did know that." And Ryan O'Neill's going, "What? Oh, what? Oh, I, I wish you would just leave. Why aren't you leaving? Oh." You're not. You're just here. Here again. Oh boy, and at least like movies trying to do comedy. I don't know what it is, but sometimes I feel like I'm just watching the screen, and it's just like all the actors are just going comedy. Like they're just like saying the word comedy over and over again. They're just going comedy. Isn't it comedy? 
we're all under the dinner table. Isn't this hilarious? <laughs> no, it's it's not. Dude, okay. it, was, it was just like, it 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 was so convoluted. <laughs> it was just it just took so long to get to the point. Um, the slapstick nature of it, it was like good for a chuckle, <laughs> but it was like there was just chuckle? so much wasted time. Like so much wasted time in the movie. It was just like, like this is coming after one of the best movies ever made. You know, and it's just like, what is this? Like, what is this? And then, it shows his range. Sure, you can put it that way. But it's just, it's just like, this is what's loud? funny? Uh, did you laugh out him? loud at any of it? Yeah, there was a part where, um, <laughs> there's a part near the end where, we'll talk about that when we get to the end, but there's a part near the end when they're doing the chase sequence and they're inside of the Chinese dragon. I, yes, yes. And she goes like, I, I can you say anything? <laughs> And he goes, no, I can't see anything. We're in a Chinese dragon. Okay. I just love the, the way he says that straight face. Oh, it's perfect. But I've laughed at that 50 times. Okay? I, I think like every a... other part, I did not laugh. <gasps> there was a maybe, you know the sequence? when can't um, be, sir. I, I know. But you know the sequence? I'm actually a little surprised um, by that, to be honest with you. A little. Well, to me, it's just like, it's Ryan o they did the weird thing where Ryan O'Neill is supposed to be this giant dork, like, professor yeah. He studies music theology. Yes. But I thought he did they have very a scene well. where he's in nothing but his underwear and a bow tie. Yes. And he looks like he could be a male stripper. Yeah. Like, he looks like he works at the Playboy Mansion yeah, on the weekends. Like, cause right like oh, yeah, this guy's a professor dork. Like, it, it, yeah. it just looks like he doesn't – Not he, I don't think he's bad in the movie. I thought he did a very good job. it's just like – it just feels like to me when I'm watching him in the back of his mind he's going – I could be at the Playboy Mansion right now. <laughs> he probably was on his way like, over there the after the shoot. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about. Like, he doesn't look like... I feel like in comedies, you can't... You have to use... If you're using a person who's generally attractive, you have to use them in the right way. Where I feel like it's okay. easier for people to laugh with somebody who doesn't look like a male stripper. But... In this, I will say in the gag scene, um, like it's, it's it's just like one of those movies though where it's like the comedy is just like, man, I just I can't believe the day we're having. Like that's the that's the joke. What a day! That's Ryan O'Neill's whole character and joke. That's his whole payoff. Every single thing is him going, the day I'm having, boy howdy. Because there's the scene where, like, everybody's in their hotel room and it's on fire, you know? Yes, yes. Then finally Barbara Streisand comes in. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, Ronald yeah. Neal is just like, oh, not you coming in now. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I was thinking, like, I was looking at the screen and I was doing the Jack Nicholson shining face where he's Aww, just like, <laughs> where he's just, like, looking out the window, yeah. you know, and he's just like, like, his eyes, he just has, like, the the mile-long or five-mile-long yes, 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 stare yes. Uh-huh. or the... 500 yards there, whatever you call it. Like, I was just looking at the screen like, no. I, I was just like, is this? I was like, please, God, can we, what, can something happen? Please, has something happen. Um, but I will say, like, the whole chase scene, the yes. action chase scene, is, like, probably one of the, the best car chase scenes from the early 70s. For sure. Uh, really impressive. Really good sound design in that scene. I yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. It's funny. I was talking to a friend of ours, Ryan, today. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally was talking to him about the French connection as well. And then you brought that up earlier. Okay. That, yeah. that was funny. But um, it's, it's, it, it, credits where it's due, it's a really impressive chase scene. Um, it is. With some really good comedy sequences and a giant chase scene. Um, yeah. That's not easy no. to capture by you a long shot. You know the scene where the guy's head is going through the tarp? Yeah, I literally thought he was being decapitated. Yo, I know. I yeah, I was it like, looks oh like. Oh my he, god, is yeah. he being his head cut off? That's, that's real shit. shit. He's flying out. Yeah, the, the car drives off the balcony or the the uh, uh, pier. Yeah, he's flying through the air. It's like, Great shot. Tell, Everything. The yeah. stuntman flying through the air. Everything's perfect in and that it shot. It looks really good, and it was the first movie, American movie, to credit its stuntman. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not know. Yeah, that. it was the first American movie to credit the stuntman. Um, and credit where credit's due, but well, uh, of course. Okay, so and then I hear the scene you. right after that, where they're in the judge, that's like the funniest scene in the whole movie to me. I I, I kind of agree. With I you. I think the judge is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And I also think that 
just the setup in that brief scene is really funny. Um, it is funny. And then everything post after that scene is like, oh my god, we have 15 more minutes. They're wrapping it up does take a little uh, bit. I'll give you. But yeah, all the intro gag stuff, I just don't think it, ends with it was set up well enough. <laughs> I know, but it was just like, it was just like literally the first like half an hour, I was like, I thought this was a movie about briefcases being mixed up. Yeah. yeah. That's barely been made a focus. They start with it immediately. Oh, a hokey of like, man, Barbara Streisand just won't leave me alone. Aww. And I okay, but I I'll let you talk for a while because I no, it's all right. I wasn't very hot on this movie. Okay. okay, no, that's fine. No, I I especially after coming right off the presses of the last picture show. The story itself is a little thin. There's no question about it. I think it's it's I don't okay. Think it's okay. Everything needs a, a good comedy. story. I I don't think you need a story to make a good great movie. Right. Right. It's just. The comedy aspect of it, I was like, I, I was just like, ah, uh, yeah, comedy quote unquote. It was just like, it just felt, it just felt kind of tired to me. Okay, you know that's fair. I I love the scene. Okay, actually, the funniest part of the movie to me, and it still makes me laugh, even though, even though I know it's always coming, is when he asks, you know, he tells the guy the ho- the the manager of the hotel tells the guy that he's working with to use his charm on the older woman who has the oh, jewels yeah. and then he walks over and he just trips her. Do uh, you know what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? I don't know why I think that's hysterical. You didn't think that was funny? <laughs> you didn't think that was funny at all. I was just like, oh, hmm. Or when <laughs> or or the dinner the, the the scene when they're at the the event at the at the uh where they meet the uh the Larrabee Foundation yeah, affair. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I thought that was hysterical when Barbara Streisand, the comic timing when she's telling the story and she's she's bringing everybody in while Ryan O'Neill is cringing over there and desperate. Oh my God, you know, this is not this real person. The way she was like, uh, kind of commanding that whole tabletop. I thought it was. I think that's hysterical to this day after all these years after I've seen it. Again, the joke of that scene is: Can you guys believe the day I'm having? <laughs> That can you believe that I know this woman? That's the whole joke. It's a type of movie where I imagined people in the seventies <laughs> laughing at, where like older people, like people in their fifties, would laugh hysterically. <laughs> in the seventies, maybe that's why I love it so much. <laughs> wordplay. It was just like See, I like the wordplay. Repetitive wordplay, where it's like, oh no, it's open. No, that's open. That's open. See, I like well, that. why is that? Why is that? You know. Uh, you can come in because it's closed. I guess now it's open. I was just like, ha ha ha. I lo- I like that. I love the wordplay. Bogdanovich is so funny. Like Peter Bogdanovich, he's probably in his thirties at the point when he's making that. Yeah, movie. I think so. But it's like the co- it's like it's like the comedy of a sixty year old man. And then Mel Brooks is making comedy, and he's sixty, and he's making comedy for like twenty year olds. And it's like, what? Maybe that's why I like it. I have a, an ancient s- sensibility, <laughs> you know, where I liked, I laughed at that movie, What's Up Doc, when I was six years old when I saw it. I thought it was funny. I still think it's funny. I don't, do, one thing I will say, the character of Eunice, Madeline Kahn, who I, Madeline Kahn's yeah, character, yeah, yeah. and I love Madeline Kahn, and she's great in the Mel Brooks movies, is, um, it was a little annoying this time around. It was a little one note. You know, it yeah. wasn't much going on there, but she still did a good job. She's still funny in it. Does Barbara Streisand get on your nerves? Because I know somebody that does not like Barbara Streisand <sighs> in this movie at all. I, I must, I have to ask this question. Thanks for listening to part one of our three-part series on Peter Bogdanovich. Our conversation will continue in part two.